All right, well, good morning. It's uh, great to be back in the book of Hebrews with you. And uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Hebrews chapter 11. Love to have you join us there. Uh, We're going through this series called Greater Than. And you'll recall the context of the book of Hebrews is the writer is writing to a group of first century uh, Christ followers, second or third generation Christians who are experiencing persecution for their faith. They're experiencing cultural marginalization. And the writer is writing to them to encourage them to endure, to persevere, and to not give up. And so uh, what, what we're going to learn today is that uh, the writer is going to share with, with us here uh, the, the one thing in life that if you have it, you can get through anything. The one thing in life that if you have this one thing, you can get through absolutely anything. What is that one thing? Faith. As you're turning to Hebrews chapter 11, let me start with a true story. I, I saw in the New York Times a few years ago an article about Bashir Ramathan, uh, a man from Uganda who had begun a new boxing career. Uh, He was formerly a construction worker and a bricklayer, but he had been known as an athlete and uh, a strong young man. At 41 years old, though, he became determined to show the world that uh, nothing had changed. And so Bashir began training at his boxing club early every single morning, where he became a popular figure there amongst the young boys. Uh, His sparring matches were always lively affairs. And the reason why uh, I found this story so intriguing is that Bashir Ramathan is blind. He's blind. He's, he's blind. He, he practices with, with sparring opponents who, who will wear a blindfold as he spars against them so that they might learn to depend on other things besides their eyes and other senses that they might have, such as their sense of hearing and their sense of uh, touch. This man who is blind is a boxer. Friends, he is unlike any other boxing competitor in the world. His story of tenacity is is quite inspirational as he, he believes firmly that blindness should not hold back anybody from anything in life. And so uh, his dream, he longs to establish a, an entire league that's devoted just to boxers who are blind. Amazing. Th- this story from the New York Times just seemed impossible to me. It, it just seems so unbelievable, but yet it's true. Now, I, I wonder what you would say if I told you this morning that Bashir Ramathan is a good illustration of how we should live the Christian life. I wonder what you would say if I were to tell you that God wants us to fight our fights, to fight our battles very differently than the other competitors. I wonder what you would say if I told you that that God wants you to, to learn to depend not just on what you can see, but more on other spiritual sources of information. What if God wants you and me to enter into a kind of voluntary blindness so that we might learn to know him and to trust him better? That's what I want to talk to you about today. But before we do that, let me personalize it for you. What is one area in your life where you're currently struggling to trust God? What is one area in your life where you are currently struggling to trust in God? Uh, Just as an exercise, why don't you go ahead and cover your eyes with me for a moment? Or maybe you can just close your eyes. That's okay. Perhaps you're here this morning, just close your eyes, and you're struggling in the area of your finances. And you're wondering how things are going to come together. And maybe God is calling you to trust Him deeper there. Or maybe this morning you're struggling with your family 
And there's something with a family member that's very hard for you to figure out what God is doing and what he's calling you to. Maybe it's your career and God is calling you to a new place or to change directions and you're not sure what the next step is and it's really challenging your faith. Or maybe you're a teenager or a young adult and you've got some big decisions in your life coming up and you're not sure what you're going to do. Where for you is that unfamiliar territory where God's asking you to take a step in your life? Now, I don't know right now how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, but I trust that you do. And I encourage you to listen with ears of faith to this message because that's what this chapter is all about. And so why don't we pray together while we have our eyes closed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for preserving this text, for helping us in our day to come in earshot of this amazing truth. Now we ask that you would open up our eyes, our eyes of faith, open up our ears, open up our hearts. We thank you, God, for those of us here who have been part of our hall of faith over the years. I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters. I think especially of the Erbigs. I pray that you would encourage them in their faith today. I think about the Barnes family who's been faithful all these years. I know today is Mary's final Sunday with us before she moves. I pray that you'd bless her for her faithfulness and as she takes her next step of faith. All of us today, we may not wear our troubles like a sign on our chest, but we all have areas of our life where we're called to trust in you and live by faith. And so, God, would you, as the disciples prayed, increase our faith today? And we ask this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11. Many people, for, uh, for them, this is their favorite chapter in the whole Bible. This is where you go. Uh, it's called the Great Hall of Faith. Uh, we will see that phrase, by faith, used 18 different times here. And there's two major sections to the chapter. First, we're going to see the definition of faith, and then we'll see the demonstration of faith. Faith, what is it? And then, you know, what does it look like? And so that's where we're headed. Uh, let's start with the definition of faith, verses 1 and 2. Take a look with me. The writer says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Here I think we have what is the best definition of faith that's out there, and it's very different from the definition of faith we find out there in our culture, right? Our culture talks about faith, but when our culture talks about faith, it's more like just like a feeling. Uh, having faith just kind of means like having a positive attitude in life. Like, you got to have faith, man. The biblical definition of faith is radically different. Uh, notice a few components. First, he says it's an assurance, the word for assurance there is hypostasis. It's a, it's a word that can be translated as confidence. It can also be translated as substance. Really, it can be translated as the word reality. Hypostasis was their word for reality. And so I want you to notice that because it's important that we understand that biblical faith is just simply saying, I have something real that I do not have right now. Can you say that with me, church? I have something real that I do not have right now. That's what faith is. Real faith and uh, biblical faith uh, teaches us that we have to look with our spiritual eyes. And reality is not the same as tangibility. Reality is not the same as tangibility. Let me try to illustrate this concept because it's kind of abstract. Uh, for those of you who are Dallas Cowboys fans out there, I know there's only like two of you in our church. 
shout out to you, Jackson Hulene, if you're watching this ever, or uh, one of the McLaughlin kids, I think. But anyway, you may remember in the 90s, there was a wide receiver for the Cowboys named Michael Irvin. Michael Irvin, one time he signed a uh, guaranteed contract with the Cowboys for $22 million. And they asked him uh, at that time, that was a lot back then actually in the 90s for, for a career uh, contract. They said, how do you want to get paid? Would you like this in a one lump sum amount or would you like this incrementally over time? And he goes, I'll take it all right now. So he was doing an interview about this new contract, and uh, they gave him a check before the interview, a check for $22 million signed by Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. He picks up the check, and you know what he says? Two words. He says, I'm rich. Now, was that technically true? He didn't leave the contract meeting with a couple briefcases full of cash. He didn't leave with bags of gold with him. The money was not yet even in his bank account. All he really had was an assurance. All he had was a promissory note. All he had was a promise, a check signed by someone who was trustworthy. That's all he had. In other words, he believed he had something real that he did not have right now. Friends, that's what faith is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same thing is true for you. Faith means I have something real that I do not have right now. You have real promises from God. They're very real. You just don't have them right now. Think about if you received a check like that in your life, how would that change your life, just simply receiving that piece of paper we would be totally excited. It would really change things in a dynamic way. But when we talk about faith in Christ and all that he has promised us and all that he has given us, that ought to change our lives, friends. That ought to change the way we live every single day. We have a check. You have a check signed by God, and you can take that check to the bank. This is faith, the assurance of things hoped for. Go back to verse 1 with me and notice another word there. He says, it's also the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction there is the word for evidence. It is the evidence of things not seen. Like you present evidence in the court of law before a jury. If somebody's on trial, the jury will examine the evidence and come to a conclusion. Though they did not actually see the crime actually take place, they will look at the evidence and determine whether that person is innocent or guilty. They come up with a decision based on the evidence. That's another important aspect of a biblical definition of faith. Biblical faith is based on evidence. Have you considered the evidence for the existence of God? Um, There's a common misconception, I think, out there about us that we have kind of a blind faith, but that is not true. God provides us, us with evidence, overwhelming evidence for his existence through creation and through revelation, through fulfilled prophecy, through eyewitness testimony. We have a lot of evidence that shows us where our faith is valid and true. Take, for example, the verse that he talks about in verse 3 about the creation of the world. The writer says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
How do I know that God created the world? I know it by faith. The creation of the world was not visible to my eyes. I don't think it was visible to your eyes as far as I know. There's no videotape footage of the creation of the world. We simply look at the evidence and then we assume there must have been God who created the world. If you stand in front of a huge skyscraper, you're going to assume because that skyscraper exists that there was a builder. You might not see the builder. The builder might even be dead, but you would assume there's a building. There must have been a builder. When you look at a painting, you're going to assume there must have been a painter. When you look at the design of the universe, you assume a designer. When you look at creation, you assume a creator. The evidence leads you to that conviction. That's biblical faith. I want to make a side point here because sometimes um, you hear people talk about faith as if there's no evidence for that. You say, well, you know, there's people of faith and then there's people of science. There's people of faith and then there's people of logic and evidence and reason. That's a false dichotomy. If you're a skeptic, if you're, if you're here today and you're not quite a believer, but you're in that discovery tunnel, you're welcome here as long as you need to to discover what our faith is all about. But just please, would you be intellectually honest with me for a moment here and just um, acknowledge that we all have to make certain faith-based assumptions about our worldview. If you're an atheist and you have a completely secular worldview, you have to believe by faith that everything came from nothing. You have to believe by faith in abiogenesis or that life came from non-life, even though we've never seen that occur. I remember I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Ernest, who's a PhD microbiologist. He works over for Merck, and they're like working on the, the cure for hepatitis C. Just a brilliant guy. And he was talking about this concept of life coming from non-life. And he's like, Pastor Dave, it's unbelievable what you have to believe. You have to think that proteins, uh, by chance, just coordinated themselves into the RNA molecule. But that's not all. The RNA molecule actually eventually had to evolve into a fully self-replicating cell. And he said, if you just think that that happened by coincidence, if you know anything about the cell, if you think that that could just happen by chance, to assume that something like that could happen with no evidence whatsoever, but then also at the same time rule out the possibility of an intelligent designer, you are displaying a clear lack of open-mindedness. See, the question is not faith versus evidence. The question is faith versus faith. We all have faith. You might not call it faith. You might call it an assumption or a presupposition or a hypothesis or a theory. But let's be honest, guys. It is faith versus faith. At the end of the day, we all have to have faith in things that we can't see. The question is, what are your assumptions? What are your assumptions about yourself and about the world? And are your assumptions really credible ones? And will your assumptions hold up to scrutiny, the same kind of scrutiny with which you seem to be scrutinizing Christianity? Because that's only fair. We all come to the world with eyes of faith. But faith here in Hebrews 11 is not just about what we believe abstractly as true. It is also about how we relate to God. Drop down with me to verse 6, if you will. Uh, the writer says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, let me make a really obvious statement. Biblical faith believes that God exists. Though we do not see God, we believe that God exists and we place our trust in him and into his care. One of the most basic Christian creeds is the creed of Nicaea from the fourth century. It starts with these four words, I believe in God. Now, that might sound obvious, but it is important because when we are talking about faith, we must also appropriately locate the object of our faith. And the object of our faith here is God. When our culture talks about faith, 
they are usually talking about believing in yourself. If you just have faith, if you would just maybe stir up a little bit more self-confidence. Biblical faith is about having confidence in God. This is what God requires of us, his people, that we exercise faith in him. But biblical faith is not just a cold, rational, intellectual kind of belief in the existence of God. No, the writer here says, no, you must be able to seek God, and you must believe while you're seeking that God is a rewarder of everyone who seeks after him, who stays after him. An example of this is found later on in chapter 11. Let me just drop down for a moment and mention that. Verse 24, the writer says, by faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And you go, how did he do that? How did Moses do that? Here's how he did it. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. As grand as Egypt was in his day, the greatest world empire at the time, he did not cave into the seduction of that society that constantly implored him to live that way and to give in in that way. No, it says, it says Moses here, he lived for a greater reward and lived his entire life in light of that greater reward. And that leads us to another important component in terms of building a definition of faith from the Bible. Biblical faith trusts God for the reward. This is really important. Friends, there will be moments in your life, moments in your family, moments at your workplace, or or maybe you're holding up your integrity in the midst of your career, or there will be opportunities for you to give yourself away or to give yourself to the cause of Jesus Christ. In those moments, you may not see an immediate benefit for you. Instead, Rather, you must see with expectation that there is great reward for living your life this way in following God and in following Christ. And you must believe God for that reward by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there will be a reward for you living your life of faith? This is what so many of the examples in Hebrews chapter 11 have shown us. So we've seen the definition of faith, that faith believes in God. It's not blind. It's based on evidence. It's possessing something real that we just don't have right now. And biblical faith seeks after God and believes God as a rewarder. Now I want to look at the demonstration of faith. In other words, how does this faith manifest itself in the lives of those who possess it? And here in this next section, the author of the book of Hebrews goes all the way back to the book of Genesis and walks with us chronologically through the entire Old Testament story, pointing out that all of these examples had one thing in common, they lived by faith. And the first part of this next section is about how faith allows God's people to do amazing things. I can't go into detail about every example, let me just highlight a few. For example, verse 7, it says, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Notice, God gives Noah a command to build a a boat. This makes no sense on a human level. A boat over 500 feet long in the middle of dry land. A boat. God says, because there's rain coming. Noah says, okay, what's rain? This makes no sense to Noah at the time. But yet, biblical faith believes God even when things make no logical sense. Biblical faith believes God even when things make no logical sense. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you're irrational. I'm not saying that you have an irrational faith. What I'm saying is that sometimes God calls you, his people, to obey while you still have limited information. And you only find out how it's going to come together after the fact. Here's another example of that. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going? Abraham, just go to the land. I will show you. How do I know when I'm going to get there? I'll let you know when you're there? Does that make any logical sense? No, this is why we call Abraham the father of faith. And that's just the beginning of his walk or journey of faith, right? After that, God makes him a promise that they're going to have a child long after his wife is finished with her childbearing years. So they wait and wait and wait by faith. And then the child comes. And then after the child comes, God says, Abraham, I want you to take that child and I want you to offer it as a sacrifice on the altar to me. Does any of this make any logical sense at this point? No, but sometimes God calls his people to obey even when our faith doesn't make logical sense. Here's another example from the life of Moses, 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now think about this. After the people are set free from Egypt, God literally leads Moses and guides him to a dead end with the the Red Sea in front of them and an encroaching Egyptian army behind them. Does that make any logical sense to you? Again, sometimes God calls us, his people, to trust him when things don't make logical sense. Here's one more example from the life of Joshua. 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, these are some of the most bizarre military instructions I've ever seen. March around the city for seven days, and then on the seventh day, seven times, and then blow some trumpets. Does any of this make logical sense? But yet, this is what God has for his people. I remember last year when we as a family were going to the hospital and praying, we would like drive around the hospital in our car. I felt so silly driving circles around this hospital, but yet I was just trying to exercise some faith in our prayer hearing God. Sometimes it doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense though, but yet this is the kind of faith that pleases God. Biblical faith believes even when it might not make logical sense. Now that might be true in your life. God might call you to obey and you don't quite see how it's going to work out. It doesn't seem to be logical to you. Would you be willing to trust him anyway? One of my favorite pastors is Charles Stanley. One time when he came to Dallas Seminary and spoke to us, he said something that I have never forgotten, and he said, this is the number one lesson I've ever learned in pastoral ministry. I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. He said this, just obey God and leave the consequences to him. Just obey God and leave the consequences to him. He said, you know, sometimes in life, you don't really see everything. Sometimes in life, it's like you're wearing a blindfold and you just have to obey God and then you have to just leave the consequences to him. Stanley said, you know, if God calls you to go through a brick wall, start running and trust God to make the hole. Sometimes you just have to obey God and leave the consequences to him. What I want you to notice about that quote is there is a posture there. And the posture is not, God, I will obey you as soon as I figure out all of the details and cover all the bases and dot every I and cross every T. 
And then when I know it'll all work out first, then I will take that step of obedience to you. No. Sometimes that is not possible. Sometimes you will not find out how the details are going to work out until you are on the other side of that step of faith that God is calling you to take. And here's the point. Friends, sometimes, or Pastor Bob told me, maybe the word is often, often we don't understand what God is doing until it's all over. And then we can look back with a different perspective. But while we're in the middle of it, we walk by faith. Why does God call his people to do that? Number one, he gets all of the glory for everything. Number two, this is one of the ways that we mature. We're stretched and we're pulled and pushed towards God and it builds our perseverance and it builds our endurance and our faith muscles begin to grow and grow and grow over time until we begin to say, you know, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon the promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Again, what area in your life right now are you struggling to trust God? What area maybe in your life doesn't make logical sense, but yet God is calling you to take that step? Let me drop down for time purposes to verse 32, where the author continues by saying, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. These are some amazing examples of people who lived by faith and through whom God did amazing things, conquering kingdoms. We remember the military victories of, of Joshua and David and Solomon, stopping the mouths of lions. Anybody remember who that is? Who's that? Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, quenched the power of the fire. Anybody remember those three guys? Who were they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, made strong out of weakness. Do you remember the story of Gideon with that tiny army that conquered the Midianites? Women who received back their, their sons from the dead? We remember there's two stories, one in 1 Kings and one in 2 Kings, where the prophets Elijah and Elisha performed a mighty miracle on behalf of these two women, and they received their sons back from the dead. The author says, I could go on and on here, but friends, we have more than enough examples. We have more than enough reason. We have more than enough biblical stories to encourage us to live by faith as well. All of these folks were able to experience the mighty, miracle-working power of Almighty God. Amen. But as we finish up this first list and move to the second list, we will see a stark contrast. There's a division in the middle of verse 25, verse 35, 35a and 35b. First, we've seen that faith allows God's people to do amazing things, but the second list shows us that faith also allows God's people to endure terrible things. See, in the first list, there's these amazing stories about God coming through and performing wonderful acts of strength for his people they were on the margins, but they received power. They, they, they were facing overwhelming odds, but yet God showed up. They, they came out, they escaped through a miracle or some kind of divine intervention. And in, in our culture, these are the kind of stories we love to hear about. 
The doctor, Pastor Dave, said I wasn't going to make it, and then I, I was only going to live for one more month, Pastor Dave, but God turned it all around. Even the doctor said it was a miracle. Great, praise the Lord. Pastor Dave, my, my business was going under, and then I fasted, and then I prayed, and, and God turned everything around. Awesome. We love these examples. They're wonderful. But can I say with all due respect that if that's your whole understanding of what it means to live by faith, it's not enough. Because this life as it is, this fallen world as it is, with all of its brutalities, if you think it's always going to work out with a happy ending, you're doomed. And your faith is doomed. you got to have faith, the writer says, sometimes to endure incredible difficulty to persevere through unbelievable circumstances. That is like the main point of the book of Hebrews, which leads us to this next section. Buckle up. The writer says, oh, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. I once heard somebody say, the safest place in the whole world is in the will of God. Amen. If that's true, why did God allow all of these things ha to happen here to these followers? Didn't he know about the danger? I want you to see here that th this text very clearly what the author is saying. Because anytime you get into a difficult situation, you might think, I'm here because I lack faith. But according to this passage, that's not necessarily the case. Just because something is hard does not mean it's not of God. Here they are in difficult circumstances, yet this is God's will for them. Just because it's hard does not mean it's not of God. This is so key because sometimes God will allow difficulties and trials into our lives, and in them we learn some of the most significant lessons that God has to teach us. Look really carefully at this section. Who's he talking about? Some face jeers and mocking and flogging and imprisonment. He could very well be talking about the prophet Jeremiah. That story's found in chapter 20. They threw him into a, a pit. Some were stoned. Who, who was stoned? Well, we read in 2 Chronicles 24 that the prophet Zechariah was stoned to death. Some, he says, were sawn in two. Now, most historical scholars say this is how the prophet Isaiah died. He was sawn in half. Others hid in caves. This could be referring to David. He certainly spent some time in caves. So did the prophet Elijah. But more likely here, he's probably referring to a small group of believers during the intertestamental period that we call the Maccabean era. Take a look at this first line in verse 35. It says, some, some were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. That reference there, scholars agree, is a reference to the famous Maccabean martyrs. Now, I want to explain this one a little bit more in depth because it's a lesser-known story in Hebrews 11, but let me just warn you, it's brutal. Around 180 B.C., 
the Greek empire had conquered the whole world, including the land that belonged to the people of God. A ruler came whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was an evil man. And what he would do is he would take prominent families out into the public square, and he would call on them to disobey God and eat unclean food like pig meat and reject the law of God and dishonor God and show him honor instead. And if they didn't do it, he would torture them and kill them right in front of their families just to make a lesson out of them. And so we read in the uh, apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees chapter 7, it's not an inspired scriptural book, but it is a true historical story. There's a famous story there about a woman, a mother, who had seven sons. All seven sons were brought out into the public square before the king. And every single son was asked, will you disobey the law of God and show fidelity to our king? And if the son didn't, Antiochus would have their tongues cut out, their limbs cut off. He had them scalped, tortured, and then he would roast them alive in the fire right in front of their family. And when that son was dead, he would turn to the next son and say, what about you? Can you imagine? What would you do? Well, this woman, the the hero of my message today, by the way, this mother, a believer of God, a God-fearing woman, stood there and encouraged every single one of her seven sons to die courageously. In fact, it's recorded what she said to them. She said, son, it was not I who gave you breath and life, nor was it I who arranged the elements you are made of. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shaped the beginning of humankind and brought about the origin of everything, he in his mercy will give you back both breath and life because you now disregard yourself for his sake. Every single son died bravely. One of the sons actually stepped forward, stuck out his tongue, stuck out his hands, and said, take them. I got them from heaven, and from heaven I will get them back. How did he do that? How did that mom do that? How did she spit in that pagan leader's eye? How did she spit in this world's eye? I'll tell you how. The only way anyone could have that kind of courage is by faith. Faith in what? What she had faith in is found in verse 35. Do you see it? She believed in a better resurrection a better resurrection. There's our key word from the book of Hebrews. We have a better high priest, a better covenant, a better sanctuary, a better revelation, and now we are also reminded that there is also for the people of God a better resurrection for those who have faith in Christ. Why does the writer of Hebrews describe this resurrection as better? The answer is as wonderful as a miracle is, as awesome as it is to be healed, as amazing as it was to receive back a child, even from the dead. What you need to know, and what the Bible doesn't often record, is that even for those people who are healed by the Lord miraculously, and even for those who are raised from the dead, eventually they too would also have to go through the inevitable reality of death someday in the future as well. Even them. Any miracle of healing we ever experience in this life is just simply postponing the inevitable reality of death for us too. And so, eventually, they and we 
all have to place our trust in this same promise that God promises us a better resurrection. Not a resurrection back into this life and into this world, but a resurrection into the next life and into the world to come. That's where you and I ultimately have to place our faith as well. Other kind of miracles are at best just resuscitations. We must believe in a better resurrection. And that promise is for us too. And so this leads us to another aspect of our definition of faith, doesn't it? Biblical faith is future-focused. Biblical faith is focused on the future. We see this theme repeated throughout chapter 11 again and again and again. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, a city which was to come. Moses was looking for that reward. We want a better resurrection. This is what that mom knew. She focused on the future. You know what she believed, friends? You know what she taught her boys? You know what she was saying? She was saying, son, we're going to get those eyes back. We're going to get those hands back. We're going to get our tongues back. We're going to get our bodies back. But it's even better, friends, that's the promise. We're going to get our whole lives back, and we're going to get our loved ones back, and eventually the Bible says that we're going to get this whole world back when one day the perishable will put on imperishability, and one day the mortal will be clothed with immortality, and on that day even death itself will be swallowed up with victory, and we will all say, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what she believed, a better resurrection. And in light of that, she looked at every son and said, don't flinch. Don't even flinch. Don't even flinch. Biblical faith is not in their agenda for God. It was in God's agenda for them. See, when we talk about what faith is, it's not about what I hope God will do and I think God should do. Biblical faith is not in our agenda for God. It's in God's agenda for us. And we say, like the Lord Jesus, your will be done in my life. Friends, this isn't the health and wealth gospel. This isn't what you're going to see from Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar. But yet, this is what Hebrews 11 teaches us. It is believing that God himself is better than anything this life could ever offer us. This isn't about your best life now. This is about nothing can ever be taken away from me because my God has promised me life and peace with him forever. Amen. Do you have that kind of faith in God? Faith in God's agenda for you, not your agenda for him? The writer concludes the passage with verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There's our key word again, better. This is how the saints of old lived by faith. They lived for something better, something greater. And part of the reason God delayed his promise of fulfilling his kingdom for them was that so you and I could also be brought into earshot and hear this good news of our Savior as well so that their faith would be made perfect while we were included in God's kingdom too. But just like they waited for us, we wait as well 
for God's promises to be realized in our lifetime. So let me ask you very personally one more time. What is that one area in your life where you're struggling to trust God? Let me encourage you today in that area to ask God to help you entrust that matter to him, to obey God and leave the consequences to him. Maybe you're struggling with your finances and God is calling you to be more generous. Obey God, leave the consequences to him. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship in your life and you've begun to harbor unforgiveness and bitterness. And maybe today God is saying, it's time for you to extend an olive branch. Obey God, leave the consequences to him. Or maybe you need a change of direction in your life and it's time for you to seek some guidance. Obey God and leave the consequences to him. Like that boxer with which I began, we must learn to depend on other things besides our physical eyes. Now that boxer does provide an inspiring story, but you know what's even more inspiring? Seeing a man or a woman live by faith. In fact, the writer says this. Did you catch it? Look at what it says about all these folks. It says, and the world was not worthy of them. Is that what God will say about you and me? Do you want God to say that about the way we lived our lives? That when God looks down from heaven, he sees that you're not living for your agenda for me. You're living for my agenda for you. And you are one of whom the world was not worthy. The boxer I shared in the beginning received honor from the New York Times. But those who live by faith will receive honor from God himself. Amen. Can you imagine a church full of people who live this out? Can you imagine men and women and boys and girls taking intentional, courageous steps of faith together? Let's be that church. Would the worship team come as we close in prayer together? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we bow our eyes and we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment here. Thank you for preserving this text. I thank you that you're here right now. I thank you, God, that you provided us with an amazing, compelling definition of faith and that you've also provided us with a, a complete list of examples who demonstrated that faith in their lives. As, as we look at that list, Lord, we're humbled and we want to emulate that kind of faith in you. Lord, we cannot see you, but we believe that you are here even right now and we trust you even though we don't always see. So would you give my brothers and sisters faith like a child who believe even though they don't always see or understand, but who just simply obey you and leave the consequences up to you. We so desire that you would be pleased with us and that you would commend us for our faith in you. But Lord, like the disciples, we pray to you today saying, Lord, increase our faith. We want to walk by faith and not by sight. Would you please help us to take the next step? In Jesus' name we pray.